Good morning, Grace Point. It is so good to see you today, especially if you're here joining us for the very first time. We are thrilled you're here, wherever you are in the world, whenever you're watching this, um, we're, we're so grateful to have you. Um, we'd love to know you're here. So if you're uh, comfortable with it, we just maybe comment in the chat section. Uh, if you're watching this live, if not, just leave us a comment and let us know you're here. And um, yeah, we just would love to get a chance to say thanks for, for being here. Um, a couple of things before we jump into the, the teaching sermon, whatever the kids are calling it these days. Um, there are a couple of dates I'm really, really excited about that are coming up on Sundays. And so I wanted to give you a little bit of a, a preview of that. On October the 4th, the first Sunday of October, so two weeks from today, uh, we're going to be joined by the one and only Brian McLaren. Um, and Brian's going to be um, speaking that day here at Grace Point. Uh, Brian has been, uh, well before I knew him, Brian was pastoring me. Um, through his books and through his sermons and through um, through a distance. Um, and, and I know Grace, he's made a big impact on Grace Point too. And so um, it, it'll be really, really, really good to have him here with us. I'm so excited about that. And then on the Sunday before Thanksgiving, um, November 22nd, we're going to be joined by Diana Butler-Bass. We're going to be in a series about our values. And uh, that week we're going to be talking about gratitude and Diana has a book on gratitude that is incredible. And so um, she's a friend of ours here at Grace Point, and we are grateful for her work and her brilliance. And so she's going to be speaking with us then. So Brian McLaren on October 4th, Diana Butler-Bass, November 22nd. Cannot wait for those Sundays. Um, it's going to be a really, really, really incredible experience. So um, today, though, we're going to continue our Bible Stories for Grown Up series. Next week, we're going to wrap the series up, at least this iteration of it. Uh, we'll come back around to it, explore other stories um, as we as we move through um, our, our year next year. Um, but uh, next week, we're going to close the series with the book of Daniel and not just one story. I mean, Daniel is a book that contains several iconic um, and maybe if you want to use this as a verb, flannel graphable uh, stories. Um, you know, Daniel in the lion's den, um, the, the three Hebrew men, uh, boys in the fiery furnace. Uh, those, those are some pretty, you know, standard stock, uh, well-known stories. But I want to look, at, we'll, we'll look at a couple of them, but I also want to take the book as a whole, because I think the book as a whole is doing something. And we're not going to read the whole book, but I want to just talk about when it was written and what it, how it may have um, been intended and received by the first audience so that we can ask questions about what we do with it. Uh, this week, I want to look at a story. Most of the stories we've engaged have been pretty well-known. This week, I want to look at a story that maybe isn't as well known. Um, and then I want to end by looking at what happens in, in Luke's version of the Jesus story. Luke references um, the particular story we're going to look at today, and there's a surprising response. So we'll, we'll come to that at the end. But our story today is found in 2 Kings chapter 5, and it's in uh, part of a cycle of stories uh, written about a prophet named Elisha. So Elisha, if it sounds familiar to another name, Elijah, Elisha was Elijah's understudy. Um, sort of Elijah was a prophet and Elisha was learning from him. Um, when Elisha, uh, Elijah, sorry, when Elijah gets taken to heaven, he doesn't die. Instead, he gets taken to heaven in a chariot of fire drawn by horses of fire in a windstorm. I mean, it's what, entrances are important, but so are exits. And this is an exit, right? He doesn't die. But instead, he's like caught up into the, the life of God or however you want to say that into the realm of God um, in the mind of the Hebrew uh, scriptures. And so Elisha is present, and, and part of his being present means that he gets, because his request was of Elijah, I want a double portion. I want, like, I want to double up on your spirit. 
whatever is at work in you, I want it to be doubly at work in me. And so Elijah says, if you're with me when I get taken away, then you'll get it. And he was. And so Elisha steps into that prophetic role. Two, two, uh, Second Kings, uh, almost said two kings. Second Kings chapter five, verse one. Naaman, a general for the king of Aram, was a great man and highly regarded by his master because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. This man was a mighty warrior, but he had a skin disease. Now, uh, I want to focus on Naaman, but that line, because through Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Aram. I mean, the Lord isn't one of the deities of Aram. Um, but the common perspective in the ancient world was that God, the Lord, whatever word you want to use, was essentially responsible for everything. I mean, so we have lots of people in our own day and age who operate on that. If something happens, they're trying to assign it to God and then figure out what it means. Um, and, and that's how they operate in the ancient world. So God was responsible for everything. The claim here isn't that Naaman or the king of Aram were aware. They were worshiping, you know, the Lord, which in this case is Yahweh. They, they weren't worshiping Yahweh. The assumption is that if they won in battle, it was because the Lord had made that possible for them. Um, now, that, that perspective isn't as convincing for us today in 2020 as it was for them. But again, there are you know people who, who see it that way, that God's sort of the great puppet master arranging all the events of our lives. Um, that's, that's just not how, um, it's not how I see the world anymore at this point. And, and so this story introduces us to a man named Naaman. And this man named Naaman, we're told in the beginning, we're told some interesting, um, I don't know if you'd say facts, details. Right out of the gate, we're told that Naaman is somebody who's really, really important. He's a general for the king of Aram. And Aram is um, in what we would call today Syria. Um, Aram and Israel, where, where Elisha lives, were enemies. In chapter six, so we're in chapter five. In chapter six, um, there's actually, the Arameans actually attack Israel. So a chapter later, Aram begins to carry out some military activity against Israel. Um, but beyond this, beyond his role as a general, Naaman is called a great man, which in Hebrew is this phrase, ish gadol. Uh, which is just a ton of fun to say. So go ahead and give it a try. I'll, I'll wait. Did you try it? Let's try it together. Ready? One, two, three. Ish gadol. It's just so much fun to say. Ish is the word for um, man and then gadol being great. Um, so Naaman, is a, he's known as a great man. He's an ish gadol. Further, he's not just a general, and he's not just a, a great man at Ishkadol. He's also highly regarded by the king, and he's known to be a mighty warrior. So uh, Naaman is sort of this guy that you, you don't mess with. He's, he's a, a general. He's uh, got a lot of clout. He's got a lot of popularity. He's, got, he, he's an important person in this country, and yet he's got a problem. And the problem is he has a skin disease. Now, when we think, uh, it's called often translated as leprosy in, in the Bible. The problem with translating it that way is that we don't, we don't know. Scholars don't know if the condition that we call today leprosy, which is also known as Hansen's disease, not sure if that's the exact same thing the Bible refers to. It seems like the Bible refers to a spectrum of, of different types of skin diseases. So they're probably not the same thing. But the point is, this great man, this revered and respected warrior has been affected by whatever the skin disease is. He, he's, he's walking around with all this power, and yet he's got this thing going on. And this is actually the setup, right? This is the, this is the setting of the conflict that will launch the plot and create the action of the story. So this great man 
who uh, I'm sure is used to being treated and respected as a great man, has a skin disease. We can, if we continue the story. Now, Aramean raiding parties had gone out and captured a young girl from the land of Israel. So again, there's the conflict. Uh, she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, I wish that my master could come before the prophet who lives in Samaria in Israel. He would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went and told his master what the young girl from the land of Israel had said. Now, if we needed a reminder that Aaron and Israel were in conflict, this is the detail, right? This young girl is an Israelite girl, and she was captured and enslaved by the Arameans when they were doing some raids. So even when there wasn't sort of a sustained conflict, often they would pop in, and I'm sure it went both ways, they would pop in and just try to create a little bit of a, a problem and, and pop out. In this case, they took a, a young woman and, and made her, the word servant's not strong enough. I mean, she's essentially a slave to Naaman and his wife. And this, it's this young Israelite woman who shares the information about a prophet in Israel who could cure Naaman's disease. In, in some ways, this unnamed uh, Israelite slave girl is the hero of the story in the sense that Naaman has zero options if she doesn't say, hey, there's actually a prophet back home who is known to be able to take care of these kind of things. The story continues. Aram's king said to Naaman, go ahead. I will send a letter to Israel's king. So Naaman left. He took along 10 kickers of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 changes of clothing. He brought the letter to Israel's king. It read, along with this letter, I'm sending you my servant Naaman so you can cure him of his skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he ripped his clothes. He said, what am I God to hand out death and life? But this king writes me, asking me to cure someone of a skin disease? You must realize that he wants to start a fight with me, right? So the king, when he, when he gets this letter, he feels threatened as if the, the king of Aram has sent Naaman here as a pretext for war. If the king fails to, to send Naaman back cured, then that will be a, a pretext, an excuse for the king of Aram to come and attack Israel. So that, that's sort of where um, this king, that there's this fear immediately that, gosh, this is, there, there's a thing behind the thing, and the thing behind the thing is the king of Aram wants to declare war on us. And in response to this like, worst case scenario, it says the king of Israel tears his clothes. And I, I sort of imagine it, uh, as, a, as a kid from the 80s, I sort of imagine it Hulk Hogan style. Um, if you were a big time professional wrestling fan, you know Hulk Hogan used to tear the shirt off. Um, I just imagine it without all the flexing and confidence, right? He's, he's doing the same thing, but he doesn't have the confidence Hulk Hogan did. Um, and in the ancient world, like to tear your clothes like this, to rend your garments, was a public symbolic act that expressed grief and mourning. And when somebody like the king would do this, it would have taken, it would have had national significance. And, and so word would have traveled fast. And it does. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that Israel's king had ripped his clothes, he sent word to the king, why did you rip your clothes? Let the man come to me. Then he'll know there's a prophet in Israel. Like, don't, don't you love that? Elisha hears it. He's like, why are, you, why are you freaking out? Why are you tearing your clothes? Why are you, like, look, you send him to me. And once he's been, you know, with me, once he's come to my place, once he's healed, he'll know there's a prophet in Israel. I just, like, Elisha's got some swagger. I love it. He's not the least bit unnerved by the request. He doesn't, like, try to hedge and say, well, you know, maybe, you know, maybe I'm a little rusty. Elisha just says, yeah, send him to me. You know, there's a prophet in Israel because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cure him. 
The story continues. Naaman arrived with his horses and chariots. He stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent out a messenger who said, go wash seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and become clean. Now, that, that whole line about Naaman arriving with chariots and horses, like he arrives in full military gear, um, apparently with a full, a full entourage. That's the meaning of horses and chariots. They're essentially like, imagine like he, he's pulling up a tank and just parking it in front of Elisha's house. What, what would the point of something like that be? What would the point of that kind of show of power, what, what, kind, of, what, what kind of message is being sent by that flexing? I mean, we can even say, why is it that totalitarian regimes and wannabe totalitarian regimes like to show off all their bombs and tanks? It's it's probably to intimidate, right? It's a way of posturing, a way of trying to create a sense of control, a way of trying to make your enemies afraid of you. Um, Actually, this sort of thing does not reflect security. It reflects insecurity. It, It doesn't reflect control. It reflects a lack of control. Like that's why you run tanks down a street in a parade is, is a way of saying, look, if you don't fall in the line, this is what you'll get. So maybe Naaman drives his tank up to Elisha's house as a way of saying, if you don't cure me, then you know we have other options. Right? So, so maybe the king of Israel was feeling threatened. Maybe he had a reason to feel threatened because Naaman rolls up in his military um, gear, full regalia with, with chariots and horses. And Naaman then goes to the door, but Elisha doesn't come out. He sends a messenger who tells Naaman, go bathe seven times in the Jordan River, and then you're good to go. How do you imagine Naaman will respond to that? It's pretty simple, right? It's not like he said, hey, you need to go make a sacrifice, take a couple goats, a sheep, a few chickens, and, and, and go make a sacrifice. He doesn't give him anything difficult to do. He just says, go, go to the river and bathe yourself seven times, and then you'll be fine. And here's Naaman's response. But Naaman went away in anger. He said, I thought for sure that he'd come out. Stand and call on the name of the Lord, his God. Wave his hand over the bad spot and cure the skin disease. Right? So he's, he's expecting something a, a little bit more, um, with a little more pomp, a little more circumstance, a little more uh, befitting who he is as an ish gadol, right? Um, aren't the rivers of Damascus, the Abana and the Farpar, better than all of Israel's waters? Couldn't I wash in them and get clean? So he turned away and proceeded to leave in anger. Here's Naaman's response. Like this is also the worst case scenario the king of Israel worried about. Naaman is leaving town offended and in a huff, and he's angry because the the man of God, the prophet, doesn't do for him what he expected. He expected him to come out, and he expected something else. I, I, I imagine when the king hears this news in the palace, he's just put on more clothes so he can tear them off again, because this is worst case. Naaman's response is anger and disbelief. Disbelief that that Elisha, the prophet, supposedly this great prophet, would waste his time in this way. I mean, Elisha doesn't even come out and greet him. I'm sure Naaman's not been treated like this before. He he sends out sort of one of his his students, and and, and Naaman is sort of just left flabbergasted by the fact that, that that the prophet of God doesn't come out to see him. He was looking for something else. He said, I, I thought for sure he'd wave his hand over the bad spot and say a few words. He's, he's looking for something more fantastic, right? He's looking for something that's a little more abracadabra-y um, than the simple prescription, which is just go, go take a bath seven times and you'll be healed. And, and he's angry because after all the waters back home in Aram, he says, are far better than anything Israel has to offer. This is almost beneath him. This is a waste of this Ishkadol's time. This is 
Like why I, I could have done this at home. I didn't have to travel all this way. I didn't have to go through all of this. Uh, and, and the story continues. Naaman's servants came up to him and spoke to him. Our father, if the prophet had told you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? All he said to you was wash and become clean. Right? He's like, if, if he gave you something massive to do, if he had told you to, to kind of crawl across the desert, right? Pushing a, a, a penny with your nose, like you would have done that. Right? You would have done whatever he said if it was difficult. He's given you a really simple task. Just go take a bath seven times in the Jordan. So Naaman went down and he bathed in the Jordan seven times, just as the man of God had said. His skin was restored like that of a young boy and he became clean. He returned to the man of God with all his attendants, right? So the entourage is mobile again, but this time instead of leaving the house of Elisha, they're heading back. He returned to the man of God with all his attendants. He came and stood before Elisha saying, now I know for certain that there's no God anywhere on earth except in Israel. Right, he has this moment where he goes and does the silly thing he was told to do, and he comes up out of the water, and he's clean. Then he goes back, and he says to Elisha, you know what? You were right, and now I'm convinced that there is only one God, and that God is the God of Israel. So fortunately for Naaman and, and the king of Israel, cooler heads prevail, and he does what he was told. And I love that line, his skin was restored to that of a young boy, right? It's better than it was even before he had the skin disease. And so Naaman heads back to Elisha. He's healed and he's humbled. And he on the spot converts to monotheism, right? Which is just an interesting sort of like, wow, like the enthusiasm of it. This experience leaves him grateful. And so he wants to pay for, for the service. He says to Elisha, please accept a gift from your servant. Notice this great man, this mighty war, warrior is now calling himself Elisha's servant. He really has been humbled and transformed by the experience. But Elisha said, I swear by the life of the Lord I serve, I won't accept anything. So he's like, this, this healing, is this is, this is universal health care. Um, this is not, you're not paying for this. This is, this is a gift I've been given. Freely I have been given, received freely I'll give. Um, and so then uh, Naaman urged Elisha to accept something, but he still refused. Then Naaman said, if not, if I can't get you to take anything, let me, your servant, again with the self-deprecating language of your servant, let me have two mule loads of earth, two buckets of dirt. Your servant will never again offer entirely burned offerings or sacrifices to any other gods except the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant this one thing. When my master comes into Ramon's temple, now Ramon was a, likely it was the, the national god of Aram and likely it was a storm god. When my master comes into Ramon's, temp, Ramon's temple and, to bow down there and is leaning on my arm, so He's saying, when I walk into this temple of a God I no longer engage with, but as I walk into this temple with my master on my arm, I must also bow down in Ramon's temple. When I bow down in Ramon's temple, may the Lord forgive your servant for doing that. And, and Elijah's, Elisha's response is real simple. He, he just says to him three words, go in peace. That's not the expected response here, right? So let's back up a little bit and then we'll work our way down. So Naaman asks for something that may seem a little off to us. He's like, hey, can I get two buckets of dirt to take back? But what, as, as much dirt as two buckets of my mule can handle? Because I don't want to worship any other gods. Now, last week we looked at the story of Jonah and we saw that in the ancient world, gods were, were sort of tied to geography, right? To specific soil. 
So, I mean, the psalm that was written in, um, during exile, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept. We, we wept when they asked us for the songs of Zion. How can we sing the Lord's songs in a foreign land, right? Because the, the power and sort of the territory of your God extended to the borders of your nation. And so if you leave those borders, you're now in somebody else's territory. And so uh, I think Naaman is, is sort of saying, when I, when I go home uh, and I'm, I'm going to want to, to make sacrifices and offerings to the Lord, I want the Lord to be present. But if I go there and, I, and I'm not here, then how will it? So it, it may be for us, it seems silly, but for them, it was a way of, it was a way of Naaman saying, I want to be able to engage with this God who I've come to trust, who's healed me. And the only way I can do that is, is to take some dirt home because that sort of links me with the divine. Now, it seems silly to us, but think about the way we have, as, just culturally even, thought about church buildings or spaces. Um, we, we tend to talk about it even like the language has been, you know, the church, a church building, welcome to God's house. Right. Um, and how many of us, when we were kids, if you grew up in church, how many of you were told stop running in God's house? Right. <laughs> like, or stop doing whatever it is you're doing in God's house. Right. That, that's sort of a thing that we were sort of given this um, sort of these categories of sacred and profane. So there's sacred space or ground, a holy ground. And then there's profane or non-sacred space and non-sacred ground. And in that understanding, the majority of the ground is not sacred. And there's a few spots that are sacred. And, and actually, when we talk about that language, we're not sitting, you know, when people say this is God's house, they're not, they don't mean that God sleeps in the back on a cot somewhere, that God's got a room or that uh, it, it, it's somehow that we think that in that space, in those four walls, God is more present than God is anywhere else. But, but fortunately, the, the good news is the earth, as the Psalm says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. There is no unholy ground. There is, only, there is no place that isn't drenched in the divine. When Moses in Exodus 3 stands before a burning bush and he's told, take off your sandals because the ground you're standing on is holy, it's so beautiful and profound in the discussions that rabbis have had and scholars have had about that text. Because the point maybe isn't that the ground suddenly became holy. The point is that Moses became aware of it. All right? We live in a creation that is drenched in the divine. The real task isn't getting God to show up, right? That's sort of the language we often use. We went to church today and God showed up, finally, right? It, it, the real task is not God showing up, but us showing up. The, the real task is having eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are open and willing to respond and remain, seek an awareness of the everywhereness of God. And then there's the stunning moment at the end where Naaman asks for preemptive forgiveness for all of the times he's going to have to go into the temple of another God because his boss is, you know, this is his boss's, essentially, this is where his boss worships. He's going to have to go in there. He's going to, have to kneel beside the king in the temple of Ramon. And uh, Elisha's response is like, okay, no worries. Go in peace. That's a, that's a bit shocking, right? Like we, we might expect Elisha to pull out some really, well-used cliches like, oh, like Naaman, if, if you're not going to stand up for God, you, you have to, you have to take a stand for the Lord. I mean, if you're going to deny God, God's going to deny you. Naaman, don't you know the Bible says, right? Like he doesn't, they didn't have a Bible really at this point, but uh, isn't that sort of where we would go? Isn't that sort of what, you know, if we were talking about this in, in our own culture and the way we were raised, the way I was raised in the Bible belt, like this would be a non-starter. 
And instead of using guilt and instead of saying, no, 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 you're either with God or you're against God. You're either worshiping Yahweh or you're, you know, or you're against Yahweh. Um, instead, Elisha just essentially says, no worries. Go in peace. And peace is the Hebrew word shalom, and it means the presence of wholeness. The presence of wholeness that's brought about by the divine presence. What a fascinating story that ends with Elisha essentially saying, go in peace. No pressure, no guilt, no worries. God, God understands what you're, yeah, you're fine. Go ahead. Um, so, so before we wrap up this really fascinating story, I want to take a, I want to share a few takeaways that I've had um, as I've been digging into it. And I'd be interested in, as you've heard it today, maybe what yours are. And you can feel free to respond to those online. You can send me an email. Um, but I would love to know uh, where, where you land with this. The first thing I thought of was that there's this expectation of a spe spectacular. Um, you know, Naaman is angry. Why? Because he feels like there should have been more production value. He feels like there should have been some gesturing and some speaking, some incantations, some abracadabra. Like so, he wanted Elisha to come out and, and, and say some lofty words and then like Benny Hinn the situation, right? Which is a verb, uh, Benny Hinn the situation. After all, I mean, he came all this way from Aram. He could have taken about right, right. So there's this sort of uh, you're going to have me come all this way, not even come out, no no production, and just have me bathe in an inferior river. But before we are too critical of Naaman here, I think we have to acknowledge that there's this this tendency in this bent in a lot of us uh, to gravitate toward the spectacular and the extraordinary. All right, it's those moments we use the language about well, God find, God showed up. But, but what if the problem has never been that God doesn't show up? What if the problem has been our lack of awareness that maybe we haven't shown up? That we, we live most of our lives in ordinary time and ordinary moments. And, and I'm starting to wonder, how many gifts are we missing because we're looking for the, everything to come to us in the extraordinary, in the big, in the fantastical, in all those, the bigness of everything. And sometimes it's in the small quietness of a moment, in an ordinary moment, doing an ordinary thing that we become aware that the ground's always been holy, right? It's, for me, sometimes it's in the middle of a stressful moment, a stressful day, but I'm tired, and then I'm, I, our kids do something, say something, be, just be themselves in the world, and I'm like, oh, man, how, how fortunate am I to be learning about life in the divine and the human through these little gifts that are around me all the time. It's about becoming open. The, the reality is God isn't just found in the bigness of a moment or in the pyrotechnics of a situation. We, we live, move, and exist in God. If God is the water, we are the fish. And I think this is a lesson that in the story the character of Naaman learned, at least in part, and one that would be transformative for us. That it, We spend all of our time looking for the spectacular. We spend all of our time wanting to lean into the, the big church seasons, Christmas, Easter. But, but it's in the ordinary that we're formed. It's in the ordinary that we experience transformation and growth and all of those things we long for. I think another thing that popped up in this story for me was that everything's kind of, there's just a grayness to everything. Uh, if you grew up in church like I did, I bet you were told most everything was black and white. Like it's either right or wrong. It's either this or that. There is no gray space. There is no gray area. Um, and it means if you think there are gray spaces or you think there are gray areas, you're probably compromising your faith. 
you probably need to repent, right? Like that's that sort of foundational. There is no gray, it's all black and white. The reality is that life is often one massive big gray space, one massive big large gray experience. I mean, we do the best we can, but, but there are moments when we just don't know what to do. It's not clear. It seems like there's two or three right responses, or, or maybe there's something that feels like it may be the wrong response, but what if it is the right response? We, we just don't always know what to do. So much of life is lived in that tension, in the unknowing. And, and the idea that the closer we get to God, the more things become black and white just has not proven true, at least in my experience. Actually, the, the deeper I've entered into mystery, uh, the deeper I've leaned into the mystery of the divine, the more gray things have become. Because when you let go of certainty, it becomes harder and harder to exclude people, um, to decide who's in or out, who's pure or impure, who's acceptable or unacceptable. Right? It's, it's the reality of God, the divine, whatever language you'll use for it, that the more we press and lean and connect into it, the grayer things become. One of my favorite songs uh, by the band Jars of Clay is... Um, a song called Fade to Gray. And there's this line in it that says, I imagine this is the God character in the song speaking, says, if you follow me, you'll see all the black, all the white fade to gray. And I actually asked a couple of times, like, how did you, how did y'all get by singing these songs in the nineties when we were very much in a black, the tr- it's black and white, it's true, it's false. It's, um, and then there's this sort of, yeah, the, the, the more you follow, the more you lean in, the grayer things become. Jesus actually interacted with this story in a kind of a similar way. So in Luke chapter four, he preached a sermon in his hometown and everybody was impressed and they're like, wow, this, this kid's got potential and he's got talent. But toward the end, while everybody's sort of talking about how impressed they are, Jesus brings up this story of Naaman and here's what he says. There were also many persons with skin disease in Israel during the time of the prophet Elisha. But none of them were cleansed. Instead, Naaman the Syrian was cleansed. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was filled with anger. They rose up and ran him out of town. They led him to the crest of the hill on which their town had been built so they could throw him off the cliff. Like, I I had some sermons that didn't go well. I've yet to have one that doesn't go this well. All right, Jesus, he's got him right where he wants him. He's like, oh, by the way. Back in Elisha's day, there were, lots of, there were lots of folks with skin disease inside our borders. And God, and God chooses through Elisha to heal somebody who's outside of our borders. God chooses through this prophet to bring peace and wholeness to a foreigner, to somebody who's not one of us. And as Jesus is challenging sort of this black and whiteness of insider, outsider, Acceptable, unacceptable, embraceable, non-embraceable, loved, unloved. And when Jesus challenges this insider-outsider perspective, people get so angry they want to kill him. Now, I always feel like we have to be careful when we approach these kind of stories because they have been used and have and still get used in terrible ways by those who want to spew the hatefulness of anti-Semitism. This story isn't a Christian story, Christian versus Jewish story. Um, Jesus isn't a Christian. He lived and died Jewish, a, a Jew. Um, this is actually an intra-family squabble, an intra-family conversation. Jesus is offering a challenge to his own tradition and saying, maybe the way we've approached this, this insider, outsider, pure, impure, maybe, maybe all those boundaries and barriers are the problem. Maybe the thing that the divine wants to do is to get out of our borders, to get out of our boundaries, to get out of our boxes, 
and to love and transform and, and generously, compassionately give love to the world. And I think it's really interesting to see how Jesus even um, controversially interacts with this story. A couple more things. I think this story is really just about taking the next right step. Naaman is sent home in peace by the prophet without all the greatest intention being resolved. Um, when Naaman says, I'm going to have to go to Ramon's temple, Elisha's like, okay, yep, no worries. Peace be with you. I think maybe the point of life is to just do the next right thing and to take the next right step. We can spend our time and energy planning the next 10 steps or the next 10 years, but the only thing we can actually do is put one foot in front of each other, in front of another, take one step at a time. And maybe there's a day when Naaman will no longer go into Ramon's temple because maybe he's going to quit, right? Maybe he's going to find another line where, who knows? But he's invited to go in peace, to take one step at a time. And in this pandemic we've been living through with all of the tension and all of sort of the disorientation that's happening in, in, our, in the U.S. right now, uh, where many of us are, um, as we see the effects of climate change happening all around us, and it feels almost insurmountable. Like, how do we, how do we respond to climate? How do I, as one individual, respond to, to climate change? Like, is, if I recycle, is that going to make the really make that big of a difference? And we may wonder, like, w with everything that's going on right now in terms of, of this pandemic, in terms of um, the systemic racism that we see present in our society, that has been present in our society for way before our society existed. Uh, I mean, there's a lot going on there and we can be overwhelmed or we can begin to take the next right step. What is the next right step for me? And if you're doing that and I'm doing that and everybody else is doing that, if we engage in that way, that just the next right step, this world can be transformed. We can make a lasting impact. We can change the outcome of this particular point in our history if we're willing to take one step at a time. And here's the last thing. I think we're being invited here in, in this particular story. We are being invited to live in a bigger story. The, the story of exclusivism that has permeated the Christian tradition for a long, long time now makes everything feel so small, I think. A story where only people who hold our, not even our religion, or not, sometimes it's even more minute than that, like people who, only people who hold our particular interpretation um, are somehow beloved and united with God, right? That it's not just that you have to be Christian like us, you have to be the specific version of Christian we are. And by, as we've mentioned before, there are 36,000 plus Christian denominations, and I, I think that all assume they're probably mostly right, or else why would they, why would they exist? So, you know, there's just this smallness that comes with the story of exclusivism. It's just for this little tiny group of people and everybody else gets left out. That feels small. And I think what we begin to glimpse here in Elisha's response to Naaman is this growing awareness that we are living in, in a bigger story than we thought. We, we maybe at first thought this was a real small story about us and our afterlife experience. And now what we're learning is this is actually a bigger story than we thought. And the, whatever the word God points to, it's far more expansive, far more universal, far more loving and compassionate than we ever dared to imagine. That we have shrunk God down into a manageable size and we've created creeds and doctrines and dogmas and theological formulations that have been intended to keep God sort of locked in that theological box that we've put God in. And yet time and time again throughout our history, God has blown up those boxes and done something else, something often shocking 
for most people, that God has ever expanded the circle, that God has continually shown us over the, the, the 2,000 plus years of Christian history, we've continually been reminded that what we thought was expansive and large was actually still way too small for this divine love and energy that wants to bring shalom and goodness to the world. Maybe that's the point. Maybe that really is all we're responsible for, is taking the next right step, doing the next right thing, moving toward love, compassion, kindness, and generosity and freedom. Maybe the point is embracing an awareness that, that we really are living in a bigger story than we imagined, one that is far more expansive than we were ever told, a story that is still expanding and growing. What would that mean for us? What would that mean for you? What would that mean for me to see ourselves taking the next right step in a bigger story than we imagined? What would that look like for us right now? What is the next right step for you? What is the next right step for me? What is the next right step for Grace Point? Those are the questions of transformation. As we engage them, we begin to, to experience a possibility that we didn't and hadn't experienced before. Um, so today, uh, we're going to wrap up um, our time together um, with a song by our friend Ben Grace. Uh, it's a song called A Little Story. And the first time I heard it, as I was thinking through um, this particular teaching, I thought, man, this, this would be great. Ben's song, A Little Story, will speak so profoundly to this. So take a listen to what Ben has prepared for us. We told a little story A little story about your love With children's books about old Noah's Ark And the flood told a little story About the world that you created In only seven days we took it literally told a little story sang our little songs little dog of glory saying that our tribe's the only one told a little story a little story about your grace we neglected to human race told a little story about your plan to save the chosen ones and so the sheep bite from the goats and right from wrong we wove a little fable told a little lie we told our little children that their little sins condemn them all to die. a bigger story a bigger story than before every daughter every son and every human one of yours see the bigger glory 
gentle home, the kind of love that's willing to stand with the hurt and broken everyone of us. So tell a bigger story, sing a bigger song. You see that God's not bigoted, not concerned in right or wrong. And yes, this love is bigger than. Bigger, wider, higher than. So big that. Old-